queens, welcome to Dose of Deception with the queens of queens, Shannon and Emily. Join our true crime family where we discuss murders, missing persons cases, mysteries, and a whole lot of conspiracy theories. So stay tuned for the wild ride. Hey queens, welcome back to Dose of Deception. We're back with season two. (laughs) Yes, we're back with season two. We're so, so excited to have you guys listen to everything that we've been working on for this season. And we're super excited to get going. This episode is actually the first of two, Mm -hmm. because for the first time we're doing a two-part episode. So make sure you tune in this week and next week so you can get the full stories on Emily's case and my theory. So, of course, before we get started, in case you're a new listener, we want to let you know what we do here at Dose of Deception. So for the first half, Emily comes in with a true crime case, whether it be a murder mystery or a missing person, and we talk about that. And then in the second half, I come in with a conspiracy theory that we discuss. Also, before we get into the episode, we just want to let you know where you can find us on social media. We have an Instagram, at Dose of Deception, and a Facebook group that is also at Dose of Deception, where you can interact with us and other listeners. So, to kick off season two, Emily, what are we talking about today? All right, so today we're going to be talking about Eileen Wuornos, who's a serial killer. Eileen was born in Rochester, Michigan on February 29, 1956. Her birth name was Eileen Carol Pittman. Her parents were extremely young when they married and had children. Essentially, they were children themselves. So Eileen's mother, Diane, she was only 14, and her father, Leo, was only 16 when they married on June 3, 1954. Less than a year later, on March 14, 1955, Eileen's older brother, Keith, was born. Now, obviously, they were very young when they were, you know, when they had the children. And not only because of their age, but also just their immaturity levels. And also the father, who I'll get into, um, they were definitely not fit to be parents at this time. Okay. Two months before Eileen was born, Diane filed for divorce and her father, Leo, was diagnosed with schizophrenia and he was convicted of sex crimes against children. So um, Eileen never actually was able to meet him because he was incarcerated when she was born. Now, her father did commit suicide by hanging while in prison when he was just 32 years old, and he was actually in prison for raping and attempted murder of a seven-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was just not a good person. Um, and Eileen never was able to have a relationship with him as a result. Mm-hmm. When Eileen was just three years old, Diane abandoned her and Keith at her um, their grandparents' house. Mm-hmm. So basically, Diane drove them to the grandparents' house. The par- the grandparents said that they had no clue that she was going to do this. Yeah. So they weren't prepared for, you know, raising the two children. Yeah. And in January 1960, she just left one day and never came back. So the children were not put in foster care, and they were actually officially adopted by their grandparents on March 18, 1960. However, this was not an easy transition for the kids. Uh, I mean, not a transition, because they actually grew up thinking that the grandparents were their biological parents. Oh, okay. Yeah, so once Eileen figured out the truth of that, it was obviously a lot of trauma to go through. Yeah. Um, but it was said that both of her grandparents were alcoholics. Mm. Um, I believe that she had a decent relationship with the grandma, mm-hmm. but the grandfather was a whole other story, which I will get into. Okay. Now, Eileen also had sex with her brother, Keith, on many occasions. I believe they had a full-on relationship. And I know that sounds insane, like, hearing it from an outside perspective, but from a psychological standpoint, it makes sense. Now, Why? Because. <laughs> well, it's not, you know, obviously, we don't know exactly what went down. Yeah. I don't know if Keith forced himself on her at first, and yes. then it was a relationship. Mm-hmm. But I believe it was mutual. And now, this happens, actually, a lot of the time. It's going to sound crazy, but it happens a lot when... um adopted parents meet their children for the first time after like 30 years if they haven't seen them since Mm -hmm. they put them up for adoption there's so much emotion there that a lot of people don't know what to do with it and a lot of the time they end up having sex and i know that sounds insane (laughs) to a person who obviously doesn't experience it yes but thinking about that from a psychological perspective keith was the only one 
there for her in her life. Who I guess wasn't the only consistent. The only consistent one and the only one who maybe was nice to her. Okay. Considering her grandfather, she lived with her grandfather and grandmother who were alcoholics. Mm-hmm. Um, and she didn't have the best life growing up. Uh, her friends from school, she only had one close friend. Her name is Dawn Botkins, okay. which... Um, I'll talk about her a little later, but she was Eileen's friend until the day she died. Mm. And she said that people wouldn't play with her when she was a kid. She was very ostracized. They would Mm -hmm. make fun of her. So I think Keith was the only consistent person in her life. So as crazy as it sounds to to you, Mm -hmm. it makes sense in terms of psychology, I should say. Okay. I guess psychologically we'll say sure. (laughs) I mean, and if you want to go into psych theories, Freud, you know, very popular Freud. (laughs) He argued that children have, or people from members of the same family have a natural lust for one another. Yeah. And because of that, we have to set these, like, taboos in society and say incest is bad or else people would be doing it more. And I don't get that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, disclaimer. Disclaimer. I don't agree. But But I kind of do. I can kind of understand it, especially if you come from an abusive home. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, but I guess it does make sense for what was happening. Yeah. Sure. We'll yes. give her a pass. <laughs> and it actually turns out that this part's really upsetting. Um, Eileen began offering sex to those in her school in exchange for drugs, cigarettes, and food mm. when she was just 11 years old. Wow. Yeah, like a child. Can yeah. you imagine thinking fifth grade? Yeah. It's insane. That's crazy. However, when looking into why she did this um, at such a young age, they discovered that her grandfather was physically and sexually abusing Eileen since they adopted her. Yeah. So if you grow up doing that, that's going to be normal to you. Yes. Especially that... She was also sleeping with her brother at the time. Mm-hmm. So it's like from a young age, she was having, she, she was being abused that mm-hmm. it became normalized. And she said, let me get something out of it at least. Yeah. So it makes sense. Uh, her grandfather would force Eileen to strip, beat her badly, and then rape her. And Dawn, her friend, mm-hmm. actually said that one day they were walking home from school together. And her grandfather got so upset that he made Eileen strip in front of the friends in front of her friends wow. and beat her with a belt like to the point where it was just really it wasn't just like a beating yeah it was torture and yeah. he made the friends watch which is very uncomfortable very so weird. i mean look what she was going through did anything ever come of that incident no people oh wait this is why this case is so frustrating why i have so much sympathy for her because yeah. there were so many times where she could have gotten help yeah and but it didn't, it didn't happen when she was just 14 or actually when she was 13 years old mm-hmm. um eileen began became pregnant Mm. by one of her grandfather's friends after he raped her because it came out that not only was the grandpa raping her but he would bring people over and let his friends do it so she becomes pregnant at 13 years old which i can't even imagine being pregnant now at 22 (laughs) i can only imagine you know how scary that was yeah i can't even 100 percent. and because you know it was in the 1960s so everything was kind of on the down low you didn't talk about this stuff so the grandparents sent her away to a home for unwed mothers i know and they made her um have the baby and go through with it the fact that that even exists in the first place i know frustrating but so she gave birth to a baby boy on march 23rd 1971 when she was just 14 years old and because of her young age they didn't even give her the option of keeping it so they put it up immediately for adoption Mm -hmm. and because um they were because to get consent from both the parents you Mm -hmm. need to like release the information yeah so to this day nobody knows who the guy is Mm. yeah however i did know that she named him keith because it was her brother's name and he was the only good thing in her life at that time okay so it kind of shows you how messed up everything around her was yeah that that's weird but i again i get it yeah (laughs) now just a few months later her grandmother actually died from liver failure Mm. and i know that eileen was closer with her grandmother yeah so uh, did they have like an actual close relationship they didn't have a close relationship but she 
Because she must was, have known what was happening. Yeah, exactly. So there, obviously, this is all hearsay, so we yeah. can't put facts on yeah. anything. But obviously, she's going to claim not to know anything. But living in a house um, with him, I'm assuming... It's not possible. Exactly. And I'm assuming that he they also abused Keith, if anything, too. Oh, yeah. So I think the grandmother did know what happened. But in terms of, like, close relationships, Eileen never had a close relationship. So even just, like, a little bit... Is better than exactly. what her other ones would be. So once the grandmother dies from liver failure... Eileen's 15 years old at this time. And her grandfather actually blamed Eileen for her death, saying that... What? Well, because Eileen was a troubled kid. Okay. She was doing a lot of things that were bad in school. Okay. However, he blamed her for the, uh, her death and said, you killed her because you caused her so much stress. Get out of here. I know. And so because the grandmother died, he said, you're not allowed to live here anymore. You did this. And he kicks her out when she's just 15 years old. What's upsetting to me is thinking back to it now, I feel like if the grandpa died and it was the grandmother still living there, it wouldn't have been the ideal situation for 100%, her, but, but she still would have had a home. Yes. So this is just her at 15 years old. I can't imagine how scared she was. And she had no protection or choice. And so she was forced to drop out of school. And the only way that she could financially support herself was being a sex worker. Mm. Um, she was homeless and she actually lived in the woods behind her grandpa's house, but wow. she wasn't allowed inside. Mm. Um, in the documentaries that there's like a million documentaries yeah. about this, but in the ones by Nick Broomfield, who mm-hmm. I will link in the bottom because his documentaries are really good. Mm-hmm. Um, there was people who were also kind of going through similar situ- like similar things as her and they would sleep in the woods together. So she didn't necessarily have friends, but she did have people that knew her, mm-hmm. but wouldn't care if anything bad happened to her. Yeah. Yeah. Now, also, because of that, I just thought of this. Um, in one of the documentaries, she shows her hands and her feet, and she has, like, permanent frostbite just from these times sleeping out here in the snow. Wow. Like, she had no choice. Yeah. And, like, to the, to the day that she um, was executed, her hands were, like, all red and, like, black and frostbitten. Mm. And that's just my opinion, but it does bother me when people make her out to be a villain because she didn't really have any choice in the matter. Now, I just want to get into her various arrests prior to the murders. Mm-hmm. She was a very troubled person. She got herself into a lot of bad situations. So only three years after she became homeless, she was arrested in Jefferson County, Colorado on May 27, 1974 at just 18 years old for driving under the influence, disorderly con- conduct, and firing a twenty-two caliber pistol from her car mm. while she was driving, like it was moving. Okay. She failed to appear in court and was charged for that as well on top of the others. Roughly two years after this, in 1976, she hitchhiked all the way to Florida. And once she, I guess, you know, she was trying to leave Michigan behind. Yeah. But once she got there, she actually met a man named Louis Gratzfell, who was 69 years old. She was only 20. Okay. Um, he was the president of a yacht club and he had money. So I'm assuming, because they did eventually get married. And actually, they got married very quickly. Um, and I'm assuming on her part, it was more so for financial stability than anything yeah. else. However, only a few weeks into the marriage, he obtained a restraining order... After they got into a fight and she hit him with his own cane. So the marriage was short-lived and it was annulled after only nine weeks. Mm. Oh, God. (laughs) Short. Mm -hmm. So Eileen continued to be involved in confrontations, many at local bars. She she would hang out a lot at bars. Mm -hmm. Um, And that same year, on July 14th, 1976, she returned to Michigan. Mm -hmm. Not long after she arrived back, Eileen was charged with assault and disturbing the peace because she was playing pool and she threw a cue ball at a bartender's head. Did she lose? She might have lost the game. Probably. (laughs) On July 17th, 1976, her brother Keith passed away from cancer. Okay, where was he in all of this time? Yeah, there's not much information about that. I know, yeah, I'm I'm assuming also, because he actually passed away when he was only 21 from cancer. Wow. Yeah, very young. So I'm assuming he was probably just dealing with his own trauma and his own issues. And um, they did not talk. I mean, they might have talked, but they were not 
They didn't see each other every day. Yeah. And after his death, Eileen received $10,000 from his life insurance policy. Mm-hmm. So he was only 21 at the time, so it's really sad because I feel like neither of them really stood a chance in life. Yeah, for sure. Um, and also, that was her only sense of security. So in my opinion, when I was reading everything about her, she kind of went off the deep end after he passed away. Yeah, that makes sense. And so she used $105 from the money she got to pay for a drunk driving fine. But then she blew the other ones on different things. Mm-hmm. One of them was a car, so that was something that she needed. Yeah. Um, however, she blew it in less than two months. All the money was gone. <sighs> wow. I know. And the car, she crashed very soon after. Oh, my God. Yeah, she lost. So she lost that, too. And she, had, she was back to square one. Yeah. A few years later, on May 20th, 1981, she was arrested in Florida again after she robbed a convenience store with a weapon and she stole two packs of cigarettes with, along with $35. Mm-hmm. She did serve prison time for this from May 4th, um, 1982 to June 30th, 1983, and that was the day she was released. Then she was arrested again on May 1st, 1984, after she was caught forging checks at a bank in Key West, Florida. And she was also named a suspect in a theft of a revolver on November 30th, 1985. Okay. It's kind of just a lot of info I'm hitting you with. But it shows you how much trouble she got herself into. Yeah. On January 4th, 1986... She was arrested with car theft, um, resisting arrest, and obstruction of justice because she was using her aunt's name and she was pretending like mm. that was her name. Mm-hmm. So she got in trouble for that. They also found a thirty-eight caliber revolver in the stolen car that she was in. Eileen once again got in trouble after a man told the authorities that um, she pulled a gun on him and demanded $200 from him. Mm. And that was this was on June 2nd, 1986. Now, around this time... Eileen met a woman named Tyria Moore, who goes by Ty, so that's what I'm going to call her. Mm-hmm. And she was she met her at a lesbian bar in Daytona Beach. Now, um, Eileen, off the bat, she I mean, they got to know each other first, they were friends. But Eileen fell really, really deeply in love with Tyra mm. because it was the only stable relationship that she'd ever had. And it was the first person who didn't just use her for sex. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's her whole life. That's what people did to her. Mm-hmm. So she really did... Love Ty. Now, Ty was a maid. Um, I believe she worked in a hotel. Okay. And she was making good, like, steady money. However... Now, where did what? they meet? In Florida, right? Yeah, they she met in Florida. Florida. Okay. She's back in Florida. Okay. Um, so, however, she was making steady money. However, um, uh, Eileen was actually the one who supported them with sex work. Mm. And Ty, um, in one of the interviews that I heard, Ty kind of was... I don't know how to word it. She kind of wanted a lot of things, and she wanted uh, to be taken care of more so. Okay. Um, and so Eileen, she would tell her, go out, like, more. You need yeah. to, like, sleep with more people. We need more money. And she kept telling her to do that, and I think that kind of pushed Eileen over the edge. Because yeah. she was happy in the place where she was with the money she was making. Yeah. But Ty kind of told her, keep going out, keep making yeah, more. Yeah, she wanted more. And so I think all the trauma built up over her life, and then having sex with people every single day, Yeah. it kind of just... I, I don't know. I feel like a lot of the stuff that her grandpa did probably came back to oh, her. Oh, yeah, 100%. And it, like, kind of set her over the edge. 100%. If this is somebody... I mean, we said that Ty really cared about her, but, I mean, I, that doesn't sound like if you loved somebody that much... Yeah. You would care more about her sanity and safety more yeah. than the money that she was bringing home. Exactly. I mean, they did need money, though, but... So I get that. Yeah. But it... I don't know. At some point, maybe help her find something else exactly like process her traumas yes. and stuff like she was kind of just she didn't seem to care in that yeah. sense and if eileen doesn't want to stop with sex work fine but yeah don't push her to do any more of it than she's capable to exactly and eileen said she would do anything for ty and up to the day that the day before she um was executed mm-hmm. she said she's still in love with her yeah and nothing is going to change also just to correct what i said mm-hmm. um like she did want like she did want her to go out more 
and make more money, but not in a materialistic sense. She wasn't, like, the type to buy a lot of things like yeah. that. She just wanted her to make more money, uh, um, and she kind of, like, Eileen was known as the breadwinner of the, the two. Yeah, so she just wanted more income. It wasn't necessarily, yeah. I want to buy all these things. No, it was not just at that all. she needed more income. Not at all. All right, so now I want to get into the murders. Okay. Once Eileen snapped and she okay. went over the deep end. So she murdered seven men, and this was within a 12-month period. Mm. Her first victim was 51-year-old Richard Mallory, and his murder occurred on November 30th, 1989. He owned an electronics store in Clearwater, Florida, and he was, prior to, obviously, his murder, he was a convicted rapist. Um, And uh, until the day she died, Eileen switched back and forth, saying that it was self-defense or that it was robbery. She Mm -hmm. kept switching her story around. However, she claims that she murdered him in self-defense after he sodomized her and brutally beat her. Mm. She claims he drove her to an unknown location, and she had no other choice but to defend herself. Police did find Mallory's abandoned truck two days after his murder, and his body was discovered in the woods on December 13th, several miles away from his vehicle. He Mm. was shot multiple times, but the official cause of death was two bullets to his left lung. Her next victim, David Spears, was a 47-year-old construction worker in Winter Garden, Florida. Those he knew declared him missing on May 19th, 1990, shortly after on June 1st, His body was found along U.S. Route 19 in Citrus County, Florida, and he was naked and had been shot six times by a twenty-two caliber pistol. Mm -hmm. Charles Carscadden was Eileen's next victim. He was 40 years old at the time of his murder on May 31st, 1990. He was a part-time rodeo worker, and his body was found a week after his death on June 6, 1990 in Pasco County, Florida. He was shot nine times with a twenty caliber pistol. Authorities found Charles' body wrapped in, like, a heated blanket. Mm. It was one of those electric blankets. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, eyewitness reports told authorities that Eileen was seen driving Charles' car, and it was believed to be in her possession at the time the body was found. Mm. 65-year-old Peter Seams was planning a drive from Jupiter, Florida, to Arkansas in June 1990, but his car was found in Orange Springs, Florida, on the 4th of July, 1990, within a month of his departure, indicating that he did not make it far. Or maybe he was coming home. Who Mm -hmm. knows? Although his body has never been found to this day, Mm. Eileen's palm print was found on the interior door handle and eyewitness reports seeing her and Peter get out of the car and walk together. Yeah. 50-year-old Troy Barres was reported missing on July 31st, 1990. A few days later, on August 1st, uh, August 4th, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. 1990, his body was found in the woods with two deadly bullet holes along State Road 19 in Marion County, Florida. Charles Humphreys was a 56-year-old retired U.S. force major, and he was also chief of police, so he was Mm. a pretty important guy in that sense. Mm -hmm. He was murdered on September 11, 1990, and his body was found the following day in Marion County, Florida. Unlike some of the other men, Charles was fully clothed, and his cause of death was six gunshot wounds to the head and torso. It appears that Eileen also drove away in his vehicle for a short time as well, since it was discovered by authorities uh, roughly 100 miles from where his body was found. Mm. Now, the last victim was 62-year-old Walter Antonio, who volunteered alongside the police and also worked as a trucker and security guard, and he was discovered almost fully naked on November 19, 1990. He was also found in a woodsy, muddy area in Dixie County, Florida. He was fatally shot four times, and his car was located nearly 210 miles from where his body was found. Oh. Yes. So those are all the victims. I know that was a lot at once. Yeah. However, once we go into the sentencing and the um, execution, we'll break down the victims for you. Mm -hmm. It is interesting, though, because out of all of them, the only one that really seems to be even possibility of self-defense is the first one. The first one, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking. So, I want to defend the first one. I'll try to. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I want to, you know, innocent until proven guilty kind yeah. of thing. But the other ones, it seems like the first one set it off and the rest of it is... 
just a murder spree. You mean like, oh, you mean he raped her, she was set off, and then yes. she just went and then off just the deep end? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe. Because I can't, it doesn't seem to me, just because of the way that some of them seem to be overkilled at some point, mm-hmm. that at some point it was just her killing people rather than her trying to defend herself, besides yes. the first one. All right, so next week we're going to just talk about the sentencing, her execution, and we're also going to talk about some of the psychology behind it, mm. about why Eileen was behaving the way she was behaving, uh, what could have triggered it, all the stuff that I love because of psychology. And yeah, stay tuned. Hey, queens, welcome back to the second half of our season premiere of season two. <laughs> so we are going to be talking about something that I'm really, really excited about. I would say it's one of the most popular conspiracy theories, especially in the country and probably in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was fitting because our very first episode, we talked about UFO sightings that were confirmed by the U.S. government around the time that we did the episode. So I thought it was appropriate that we did another topic about outer space for the season premiere of season two. (laughs) So for today's and next week episode, we are going to be talking about the moon landing and the possibility that it was faked. I'm a supporter of this theory, but I want to hear your different you know think about it like usual i'm gonna say the evidence and i'll say the things that scientists or the government whoever have come out and oppose them so Mm -hmm. i will give both viewpoints and i will save my opinion until the very end (laughs) okay (laughs) and i will tell you whether i believe in it or not so this is like i said i would say one of the top three most popular conspiracies in the country there have been many documentaries articles books pamphlets everything that you can imagine that cover this topic and has a lot, a lot of evidence that supports it. Besides this, there's quite a lot of motivation for the country to do this that also helps the believability of this theory. And before I get into how it may be faked, I think it's important for me to go through the events that happened that are historically accepted. Just want to give credit to the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, which is where I got this part of the information from, the actual events that happened. Or so they say. (laughs) So Apollo 11 is the manned mission that made it to the moon first. On July 16, 1969, Apollo 11 launched from Cape Kennedy, which is in Florida, at 8.32 a.m. This is a Florida episode. Right? (laughs) So before landing, the shuttle took a couple of orbits around the moon in order to take photographs of its surface. Then 102 hours after its initial launch, they landed on the lunar surface. After precautionary measures were taken and beginning recording on a camera so that this moment could be seen on Earth, which this moment is estimated to have been seen by 600 million people alive, Neil Armstrong became the first person to step on the moon. Buzz Aldrin then soon followed him. They collected lunar surface materials so that even if something happened to them, that material would still at least make it back to Earth so that evidence of their expedition was saved. After about two hours and 15 minutes of doing experimentation and other pre-planned activities while on the moon, the two prepared to re-enter, and after a scheduled sleep period, ascended from the moon and then proceeded to successfully return into the Pacific Ocean. Wait, how long does it take? What do you mean? To get to the moon. It took them a total, I believe it was 102 hours. Okay. About. Because I'll get into it a little bit later, but... I, it, it was around, it would have been a couple of days, basically, for okay. them to go back and forth. So, now I'm going to talk into the origin of the theory. Okay. Now, the idea that the moon landing was faked was begun by a man named Bill Casing. Now, he did have some credence to begin this theory, as he did have government work. Okay, so he wasn't just a random person on the internet? He wasn't just a random person. Okay. I mean, his positions were low, and I'm going to get into what he did 
so it's not totally reliable, <laughs> but he was someone that worked in the government Nassau community, at least, okay. during the time that they would have been planning the moon landing. Was he old? He wasn't, like, some random, you know, kid trying to okay. pull a prank kind of thing. He was uh, an adult with a family and stuff by the time that he came out with these theories. Okay. So he served in the Navy during World War II and then went to college and received a BA in English after he served in the war. After this, he worked as a technical writer at Rocketdyne's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He continued to rise up the ranks and be promoted in that company through to 1963. Now, in the years after, he resigned from his position there. He became somewhat of a hermit and separated from his family. He had a wife and kids at the time. Uh, it was noted that he started to have growing anxiety, mm-hmm. and I don't—I guess not fear of the government, but just a general sense of doom, I guess. <laughs> so he started to live off of his own, off on the grid, basically. Then in 1976, Casing self-published, We Never Went to the Moon, America's $30 Billion Swindle. Hmm. Now, this was more of a series of pamphlets than a book. A casing claimed that the probability of a successful moon landing with the technology that he witnessed while working in the industry was about 0.0017% possible, hmm. which not very good. <laughs> <laughs> not good at all. So it is worth mentioning that during this period of time in American history, there was an extreme mistrust in the government. Watergate scandal had just happened in the years prior to the release of this book. And the Vietnam War was coming to a head. It was basically the final years of it, which were realistically the worst years of it. So anybody would have latched on to the idea of the government lying about something because everyone believed that the government was lying to them. So culturally, this was a very good time to popularize a theory like this. Now, in 1978, a film called Capricorn One was released. This was a film about how after a technical malfunction occurs at takeoff, Three astronauts that were supposed to fly into space have to record footage in Hollywood so that there is no public outcry that a launch did not happen. So this happens not that far off from when the books were published Hmm. and not that far off from when the actual moon landing was. Also, side note, this movie does star O.J. Simpson. Which Will at some point actually? I'm sure we'll talk about. So, yes, it does. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll, we'll probably talk about that soon. Yeah. So that was just a random side note. <laughs> I forget sometimes that he was as popular as he was before I know, me too. Happened. Anyway, so people pointed out how possible that the events of this film appeared to be. And also noted the similarities between the fake space equipment used for this film compared to the equipment that was used for the Apollo 11 mission. Because it was very too detail accurate what the fake footage from the movie looked like compared to what the real moon landings footage would have looked like. There was a re-rise in the popularity of the moon landing theory in the 80s by the Flat Earth Society, and this is the most popular, (laughs) which... Okay, side note, I will talk about Flat Earth at some point, begrudgingly. Spoiler alert, I don't believe in it. Me neither. But it is so ridiculously popular, especially now for some reason. It It seems like it's more popular than it's ever been before. Mm -hmm. So we will talk about it at some point. I will give it its fair due and its fair research, and I will do it with an open mind. But just spoiler alert, I will go into it a little bit doubting. (laughs) But I will look into that, and we will talk about that at some point. Probably a two-part episode, because the amount of theories on that is... Really? Yes. There's so many websites. I mean, this is a legit society full of people that believe in this. So the amount of research that they have done to try to prove that is insane. Again, anyway, side note. <laughs> so this is definitely the most popular theory about the moon landing. I will get into it a little bit later. Okay. 
So I will talk first about the initial reasons why people may not have believed in the moon landing. Casing believed that it was a well-documented fact that NASA did not have an organized and capable control room in the early 60s, but was suddenly able to have it together enough for a manned mission only a short couple of years later. Hmm, true. Uh, It's it's not just Casing saying that, too. It did seem that only a couple years prior to the actual moon landing, there would have never been the capability of doing it. Yeah. And I think that's something that even people that 100% believe in the moon landing would get behind. Also, it is worth noting, however, that we'll get into the space race at the end a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Kennedy did greatly increase the budget for NASA. So it does make a little sense that they would have been able to grow a lot between those only those couple of years because their budget became billions more than it was at the time when casing would have been there. Also, Casing's initial argument appeared to be that the technology in place in NASA would not have been able to successfully complete the moon landing. He believed that the engines that were being created during his time period were unreliable and would not have been able to successfully complete this mission. Because remember, he was working at specifically an engine laboratory. He also stated that he believes that NASA may have launched the astronauts, had them orbit around the Earth's surface, and then on the day they were supposed to land just had them land in the specific <laughs> after having them orbit. <laughs> so instead of, so he believes that them landing in the Pacific is real, which it's hard to deny that's not because yeah. besides the live footage of that happening, you could literally see the astronauts they came back. So it's hard to have actually faked that part. So he thinks that they did go out into space okay. but just orbited the Earth and then just landed on the Pacific on the time period that they were supposed to. So that's his belief on what actually happened during those events. So, after Casing's book became popular, he began to make public television appearances, which made many more doubters across the country. By 1970, 30% of Americans believed that the moon landing was fake. (laughs) That's a lot of people. Yeah. Right now, it lies somewhere between, like, 6 and 15%, which is still a good chunk of people, and a lot of people on the surveys that I was seeing about people's today's beliefs on it were i don't know for sure i that's kind of where evidence I am, yeah. on it yeah but in 1970 30 percent of people 100 percent said i can confidently say that the moon landing was faked wow <laughs> that's how popular that his theory blew up from just this one guy writing this book and making the appearances on tv so here is some of the photographic evidence that leads people to question the footage from the landing see that photographic evidence is what i've seen that that's why i initially yes. said i believed in it there is so much yeah. from just the brief videos and photographs that they have shown that NASA has released that lead to people to believe this. So, first in the footage from the landing, there were no stars anywhere in the footage, which seems like something that would undoubtedly be there if you're in the middle of space. <laughs> so, especially if you think that on Earth, you often cannot see stars due to pollution. However, on the moon... Yeah, I was going to say that. So you should be able to see everything clean and clear because the atmosphere is completely cleared on the moon. Hmm. But maybe it's just... I don't know. What? Maybe it's just <laughs> different lightings? Well, I there is a scientific explanation for why okay. the stars wouldn't be seen there. However, if you do at first glance, it makes no sense that there wouldn't be stars in, able to see because there is no kind of pollution or life interference with anything that was going on in the moon. Unless there's aliens, but we'll get into that time. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you look at the photograph, other photographs from the moon, 
you can see countless stars and clear skies when you look at oh, other okay. photographs. Other photographs you can? Yes. So why is this one different? Huh. Also, it is worth noting that Apollo 11 astronauts have stated that they do not recall seeing stars while they were on the moon. Hmm. Which, I think they were just probably a little preoccupied with what was going <laughs> yeah. on. They're probably not looking out in the sky looking for stars. But the theory is either that this proves it was in a studio or that NASA did not want astronomers to be able to identify that the stars on camera were a view from Earth, so they took out and edited the stars com- entirely from the footage oh, that okay. they made. That would make a little sense. So it's either that it was in the studio and nobody thought of putting stars in the studio, which you would think of that. You, yeah, you would, <laughs> if you were supposed to be on the moon. Exactly. Or that NASA didn't want people to catch on that it was from Earth's perspective, so they just took them out entirely. However... Like I said, there is a scientific reasoning behind stars not being picked up by the cameras. The light exposure makes it make sense that the stars would not appear. Daylight exposure from the sun illuminated much brighter than any star in the sky would have at the time. Also, the astronauts were wearing extremely reflective white suits. These two conditions put together would make the stars unable to capture in the simple cameras that they would have been using at the time. Okay. That is valid. That makes sense to me. It does make sense. Yeah. (laughs) To me, I don't know. I feel like you would have had better cameras for that. And some of the photos that you see are so clear, and then some of them are super not clear. Mm -hmm. So it's like, why is the quality so different between some of them? You mean some of the pictures from the same event? Yes. Okay. So to me, it's odd that this camera is not good enough to pick it up. But also, the sun is very freaking bright. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I understand why that would have messed up the camera. So another part of the footage... That people question is the thought that the flag that was placed on the moon appeared to be blowing in the wind. Oh, I heard this one too. Now, in normal circumstances, this would not have been possible at all, as there's no air on the moon. Therefore, the flag should have just been limp against the flagpole, just laying down. Now, there are two things I read that proved to debunk this theory, or at least tried to prove to debunk this theory. The less popular one appeared to be the thought that the cooling systems within the astronauts' spacesuits would have been blowing air and possibly blew the flag. Okay. Uh, but I would say, due to the varying distances that the astronauts were from the flag at different times, I just don't see that being the reason to debunk that theory. Wait, but did it blow the whole time? It didn't blow the whole time. And okay. now if you look at the flag, if you were, you know, there's rovers and stuff on the moon now. If you look at the flags now, it's it's not moving. It's just at a standstill. Okay. Now, like I said, with the cooling systems... I don't really believe this one because of, one, the sizing that the cooling system would have been just because it's in the spacesuit. It can't be that large. And they, when you, they, people were farther away from the flag, it was, would have still been blowing. So to me, I don't really like that theory. But there is a second one that hopes to debunk this. And that is that the flag was specifically designed by NASA for this mission as they knew the flag would not be able to fly in the wind and for you know, photography, cinematic reasons, it would have looked nice if the flag's flying instead of just, they put the flag in and it's just (laughs) limp sitting there. (laughs) So this flag had a horizontal rod in it that kept the flag upright. To me, though, that would still not create a rippling effect, even if it's upright. That doesn't necessarily mean it would be moving. Yeah, Yeah, it would just stay up. But if you look at videos, like I said, now of the flag, it does not move. This is because they say... The flag moved when it was being pushed into the ground, which is what created the rippling effect as he was pushing it in, like shimming it in and moved the flag a little. So that's the argument about the flag. Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, it rippled a while, 
you know, like when you put something to me, if you put it in the ground, it's only going to ripple for like a second or two, especially mm-hmm. if there's literally no air. Yeah. So there's nothing else blowing it besides the push that you did to put it in. So, mm. <laughs> and some of the photos, like the flag looks crinkly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Like it looks like indents of as if it's as if it was flowing a yeah. little bit. So. We'll leave the flag one alone for now. <laughs> Another photographic argument that people make against the moon landing is that the shadowing in the video and in the photos is quite odd. In theory, the only light that should be hitting the astronauts is the light from the sun. There's no other light source that would have been there. Therefore, anything that is being covered in a shadow should not be visible. And besides the objects in focus of the camera, it should be near impossible to see anything as well. However, in some of the photos and videos, there are many things that, in theory, you should not be able to see. This has resulted in many people believing that this is film equipment lighting that it means that it would be taking place. All in like studio. the shadows and stuff. Exactly. So now, of course, there is some evidence that works to disprove this theory. People should take into consideration that the lunar surface could be considered a source of light, although it does not produce its own light. The lunar surface reflects the light from the sun that hits it, so that does create a light. Like you said, people also note that the shadows of some of the objects, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, sometimes appear not in parallel or in opposite directions from where they should be going. However, scientists say that the three-dimensional moon surface needs to be taken into consideration, as this can appear to make shadows cross even though they are parallel. Because, you know, when the example that I read about was train tracks. Okay. When you look at train tracks and you look at where they're going... Since the Earth is curved, and the farther you look away, the more curved it looks, train tracks may appear that they're getting closer together as they get farther away from you. Mm-hmm. So that's what they say about the moon example, that you're seeing some of the shadows, but that's just because the surface they're standing on is curved. Okay, So the shadows sense. go in directions that normally your eyes wouldn't perceive them that way. So, again, that's something that people find a little funky. Mm-hmm. That, I guess, does have a scientific, this is the reasoning why they say... It discredits it. Another thing that many people point to is just how perfect most of the photos appear to be. The cameras used on the moon did not have viewfinders, so the astronauts taking it would not have had the ability to see the photos while they were taking it. Oh. So most of the photos that. that are released are perfect. This is what they were trying to take a picture of. They got it exactly in the camera. And to me, that would be very difficult if you're not able to see the positioning when you're actually taking the photo. Now, NASA has said that both astronauts were able to practice with the cameras while they were still here on Earth. They also say that they published the best and most clear photos only, and that there are countless photos in archives of blurry and unclear photos that were taken. That makes sense. It does make sense to me, though. I feel like you would want to publish every photo, even if it's a crappy one. Mm-hmm. Just because you're on the moon, why not? Yeah. Like, it's amazing enough that you're there, so just release everything you have. Now, one photo from the moon landing in particular brought into question if the astronauts even had cameras on them, which, of course, supports the theory that, of course, they didn't have the cameras because some random studio director had the cameras. (laughs) (laughs) So the picture was taken by Armstrong, and it is a picture of Buzz Aldrin. Now, in the photo, you can see the reflection of Aldrin's mask, like the suit. It has the clear glass front on the face. So you can see back... To Neil, even though oh, Neil it's a was reflection? the picture. Yes. All right, that makes sense. So, in the picture, you cannot see a camera in Armstrong's hands. Now, however, NASA has said that the cameras could have been too heavy due to the suits, and therefore they were m- mounted onto the front of the suits 
rather than them holding in their hands hmm. during the landing itself. So, uh, to me, though, if they're heavy enough to not be in your hands, they're heavy enough to not be mounted onto the front of your suit. <laughs> I feel like didn't. you would still see some form of a camera. Yeah, the photo, it really does just look like a suit. And yeah. to me, I understand that their technology at NASA is going to be far superior than anything that is on Earth. But in the 60s, cameras are visible. They're pretty big. Yeah. So, to me, something would have been able to be seen, but it does just look like the plain suit in the front of that photo. Hmm. So, Bet you they weren't thinking about reflections. No. They should have thought carefully. <laughs> <laughs> so, another photographic theory is that the crosshairs from the camera in several of the photos appear to be behind the objects that they're taking a picture of, which would not be normal in a real-life unedited photo. Okay. So, the crosshairs mean? are... It's when you take a picture of a cam- with a camera, and especially like an older or more scientific camera... It's there's the cross in the middle that has the circle around it that kind of frames to you where the center of the photograph is. Yeah. So that would obviously appear in front of whatever you're taking a photograph of because that's the first thing in the camera. But in some of the photographs that they showed, if there was, say, there was, say, Buzz Aldrin was in the photo and his foot was in the photo. Okay half of his foot would be in front of the crosshair so you couldn't see it and but then the other half of the crosshair would be appear that it was behind his foot but that doesn't make sense because the crosshair should be in front of everything okay that makes sense kind of so this led some people to believe that the objects had been edited and placed in front hmm. of the background images because they say they edited his foot in front of the crosshair image so it would appear that half of the crosshair image is visible and the other half is behind his foot hmm. because you just superimposed his foot onto the photo. So this led some people to believe that, like I said, the objects had been edited in and placed in front of different various background images. However, now I was trying to understand photography wise (laughs) the logic behind this being possible i could not understand the explanation i really tried (laughs) but due to the type of plates and cameras being used the camera can appear to create an image that appears to be superimposed even if it is not okay there was an explanation to why that was possible. Okay. Did not understand it because I don't know anything about photography terms. <laughs> <laughs> but the, it seemed legit, the explanation. So I kind of buy it. Now, the last theory that I'm going to talk about in this part one mm. is another piece of evidence that Casing, remember the guy that wrote the initial book, latched onto and was the idea that there was no crater or dust scatter from the landing. Now, when you imagine heavy things landing onto a surface, you imagine a dust cloud popping up. You imagine a giant dent from wherever it landed. This is going to be a stupid question. I already know it. But what kind of terrain is the moon? Rocky. Okay. So you would see that? Yeah. You know how the moon has, like, different craters and stuff like that? That's what it's imagining. Like, it went in and it should have created a dent in it from when it landed. And also, it is dusty and full of rocks and things like that. So they think that a dust cloud should have came up okay. because that's what the whole surface would be. Now, there was some dust when they landed, which has been noted by Buzz Aldrin, has said that he did notice the dust coming up. Since there is no atmosphere to hold up the dust, it falls straight back down. And that's the scientific reason why there was no dust cloud that formed. Also, it does make sense why there would be no crater from impact. So since the moon is in a vacuum of air... The exhaust from the rocket landed, landing quickly spaces out into a wide cone. Okay. Which makes the impact onto the landing surface much more gentle than it would be. 
See, that makes I It's just confusing because I don't, you know, have experience yeah. with it. So I can't really say, oh, that's a lie. Yeah. Well, when, you Because know? when you watch a movie, uh, say, of something, a rocket taking off, even if it's taking off or landing, you, there's the giant dust yeah. and exhaust just expands out of it. But on this, it didn't, so that people didn't understand mm-hmm. why that wouldn't be possible. But it's because of the difference in atmosphere. There basically is no atmosphere on the moon. So the dust just went up and then fell back down. It mm-hmm. didn't have the chance to space out or anything like that. Okay. That and there's sense. no crater just because the the way the exhaust comes out of the rocket, it lands actually really gently rather than, you know, a giant ton worth of things crashing onto the moon. <laughs> yeah. So... There are many, many more theories that we're going to get into, including the motivation behind why America might want to fake something like this uh, and some other things that aren't just the photographic evidence. However, the photographic evidence, I think, is the thing that gives the most credibility to this theory because there's so much of it. So we're going to get into more of that and more into some other parts of this theory in next week's episode. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Tune in every Friday for more mystery and madness. Bye, queens.